This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. Hey there, everyone, and welcome in to episode 225 of our little podcast here called Film Tank. Alex Diegman with you, along with Toussaint Egan. Howdy! Hello. And also Nick Cheney joining us on this episode. Hello! <laughs> How are you guys doing this evening? Oh, you know, just 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 doing another day in paradise. By paradise, you mean not leaving your home. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we're in. Uh, we're. Oh, go ahead, Nick. I. Oh, never mind. I. I have nothing to add to this conversation. Okay. Don't say that, Nick. You no. have lots to add to this conversation. Aww. The episode just started. I thought I was gonna catch Alex in a lie, but I didn't. For some reason, I thought you were one off from our. Uh counting but you're not because you're always on point yeah that is extremely untrue i've been off probably five or six times over the years so uh, but thanks for bringing it up though i'm not wrong this time nope we lift each other up here at film tank yeah it's yeah we're we're, i was gonna say we're definitely positive people yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's a goddamn lie (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, no, we all think that. See, I feel like I'm. It's not like <laughs> I don't think we're like guilty remnant level, but I think we're all pretty much in agreement that it's like, yeah, this seems like this is about the right thing to happen. Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> yeah, you know what? <laughs> this seems like the natural effect of this cause. You know what I mean? It's like it's gonna happen. Yeah. Speaking of that, uh, this is really random and off topic since we don't really talk much about uh, the re- religion on, on this podcast. But I saw the Pope today made a comment that um, pandemics are going to continue happening because of climate change. And I was like, oh, okay. It was, like, it was wh- very interesting to hear the Pope say that. Yeah. I mean, it's. Like if it's as if it's clear as day to him, like <laughs> who can who like who, who, what? Because yeah. I mean, he's got some thoughts. He's so got a lot of thoughts. He just should, to hear 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 him say that, I was like, oh, okay. You should start a podcast. I'm podcast. I think he might have one. I'm sure but he I, does. I don't think. I think it would do much for us since I'm sure it's in Italian. Yeah, yeah. not for children. 
Oh, he actually does have a podcast. There's a lot of things in the Catholic religion that are not for children. Oh. Some people would disagree. <laughs> oh, don't do this. We're here to talk about a movie. Spotlight. Uh, okay, so one thing, uh, before we talk about the film that we're going to review on this episode, which is a film that is regarded by many people as one of the greatest films of all time. I'm, I don't and necessarily agree with them. Mustard on their hot dogs. I mean, a lot of people <laughs> make a lot of bad decisions. At any rate, just stating something. Uh, <laughs> at, at any rate, so um, what I was going to mention though is I lost my train of thought here. Oh, oh I got it. Okay, thank good. you, Nick. I got it. Okay, so I rewatched Parasite last night for the first time. Uh, uh, it recently was added to Hulu, and I still very much enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I liked it more the second time, but I liked it just about the same, I would say. I will say, though, after watching it and seeing everything that happened, um, I'm pretty floored that it won Best Picture, and I'm happy that it did. But um, I unfortunately feel like people voted for it and didn't see it. I don't. I don't know if that's that's true. But... No, that's true. That it's is true. Thing that does happen for sure. We already know that much. The whole yeah. reason, the whole reason why that film won Best Picture had nothing to do with the merits of the actual film itself. And I'm not saying that to deride it because I honestly do believe that it deserved to win best picture it's all because bong joon ho like called them out and called the oscars a a local festival and that people can't read subtitles so they decided to flex and then nominate and then allow it to win in order to be able to i mean it was already nominated no he said that he said that during the voting week yeah it's like yo we're cinephiles yo we're actually watching it no you're not you don't give a fuck I think there was a lot of reasons why it won that had nothing to do with the movie itself. Um, some things due to the, you know, the history of the Oscars itself. I mean, Green Book kind of pretty much almost guaranteed that they had to do something radical this year. Um, because that was one of the worst decisions they've ever made. And they certainly got a lot of backlash for that. So it's like a pendulum? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, you know, for every, I don't know, uh, whatever, we they do throw a bone. It's just I feel like this time they threw it further than they were expecting, and they were like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's just something about certain parts of the film. Hey. Oh, quiet, Nick. <laughs> Hold on, my goddamn dog. <laughs> so... White, okay? This is my hobby. <laughs> so Tucson cannot have this hobby? Oh, I'm here. Shut the fuck up. I'm not leaving. Okay. I... I'm not fucking leaving. No, so... What's up? Uh, like, the climactic scene where all of the stabbing is happening and people are falling over and the child has a seizure and the father gets stabbed to death because he can't handle the smell of the poor people. Just the way that progresses, I just was watching that in my mind thinking, A, this is such a great scene, and B, there's no way that old white people watch this and went, best picture! 
they had to have not seen the movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I see what you mean. It, it is a very weird choice in all the right ways. Mm-hmm. No, I'm again, uh, I'm really happy that it won, but I think that a large percentage of people who voted for it never saw it. I can see that. So, yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Never going to get any evidence of it unless Warren Beatty comes out and lets us know. So, there you go. So, the film we are reviewing on this podcast is a film that, other than what Nick was saying, uh, a lot of people do really uh, think is one of the best films ever made. And uh, they are not necessarily right. But at, at any rate, the film that we're discussing is The Shawshank Redemption, a film directed and written by Frank, or sorry, well, the, story, the original story is from uh, Stephen King, a uh, short story that he wrote, uh, and then the screenplay uh, and the film was then directed by Frank Darabont, who uh, hasn't done a lot of good work in his career. He's done a couple films that um, are pretty solid. Uh, I've heard Nick's told me a good thing about The Mist. Yeah, this uh, is great. Yep. I've never seen it, He's but uh, only good things. directed three movies, right? Uh, it's it's a little bit more than that, oh, but it's because okay. it's um, Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, um, that really not great Jim Carrey movie called The Majestic. Oh, he uh, directed and, that? Oh, yeah. That's not even on his Wikipedia page. That's so funny. Oh, it is. Well, the last time I checked, it wasn't, which I didn't understand. But yeah. Hey. Huh, okay. That's funny. So I guess it's four, because then he did direct The Mist. So it's only four. Okay. Huh. Hmm. At any rate, he did direct this film. Uh, in this movie, centers around two imprisoned men who bond over a number of years, finding solace at eventual redemption through acts of common decency. So the main characters in the film are played by Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. Tim Robbins plays a character named Andy Dufresne, while Morgan Freeman plays a character named Red. Uh, other people show up throughout the film film who are pretty lesser known um the people who are very noticeable include bob gunton who is the warden and then um the main police guard who's played by clancy brown who's been a character actor that's been in millions of movies including stormship troopers uh the informant thor ragnarok hail caesar he's been around for a long time he's done a lot of things so, um, that's really the main story. And uh, it's a film that people love. It definitely caught on as a cult film after its release. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards, but won none of them. Um, and again, uh, really through cable in the late 90s, um, really became a cult classic for a lot of people who um, now think it is fantastic. And I don't necessarily think they're wrong. So, who wants to go first? I do. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, I rewatched this, obviously, for the podcast. And I probably have seen this all the way through maybe once before. Obviously, I've caught 
part of it on television, but to this day I have a conspiracy theory that no station ever showed the movie from start to finish. They just started it about a half hour in and then just see if anyone noticed and then everyone would watch it anyway, just to like save time on the programming. Um, That's quite a claim. Oh yeah, and I have uh, research in the field to back all these up, so don't worry. Um, but yeah, it's always obviously grown up with it being that movie, but I think uh, uh, actually what Alex just said kind of highlights what I think about the movie, which is that it was nominated for seven Academy Awards and it won none of them. I think that's kind of about right for this movie, which is that it does what it needs to do to get to the end and there's really nothing wrong with it but I wouldn't say there's anything about this that's particularly wonderful or great it's just a a cromulent movie and I can certainly enjoy myself watching it (laughs) but I don't need to watch it for another 10 years if that it's um I personally only really enjoy it on almost like on an almost ASMR level. Like I don't think it's that moving as a story, but I will admit that there is some kind of rhythmic flow to just putting it on and sitting down and listening to Morgan Freeman talk and watching time pass in a very uh, uh, almost soothing way. Um, I do think it has a slightly I I feel like I'm going to catch flack the moment I say this, but there's it does suffer from a trope that I think a lot of pieces of media suffer from, which is I don't think there's a single piece out there that I can think of that depicts prison in a genuine light. And I always come back to things like Shawshank and Orange is the New Black where there are obvious moments of cruelty and whatnot but I also at the end of the day feel like uh, the viewer gets institutionalized as well when you watch pieces of media like this where there's almost a lie agreed upon of the structure of prisons in fictional narrative that are almost like gangster films where they become alluring in its close-knit society that I almost feel like is slightly uh, dangerous storytelling, let's just put it that way, Uh, kind of almost elusively romanticizing prison, even if the characters are not obviously doing that, Uh, nor should any sane person do that. I just think that it's a weird, like, unless... Your HBO's Oz, which is a great prison drama that never once makes you wish you were in there. And I'm not saying that watching The Shawshank or watching Orange the New Black, you're watching it wishing you were in their shoes. But you almost get the sense of like, you know, if you just keep your head down and you find like, I don't know. It's just there's a weird fantasy at the center of a nightmare that I've never been comfortable with with a lot of uh, prison uh, media. Uh, That is a really... um, That is a profoundly woke commentary on uh, Shawshank Redemption, and I'm really glad that you actually um, voiced that, Nick, because I sort of felt the same way watching it again. I mean, I really do enjoy this film, and... um, 
like I I enjoyed it just as much like this this subsequent time like after returning to it after maybe like years and years but it is yeah it is totally like a lie agreed upon it's like it's it's a it, it almost feels like it, it reminds me of and when I say this I'm not trying to denigrate this film or Shawshank Redemption but when you're talking about a lie agreed upon it almost feels like uh like life is beautiful in its depiction of yeah, like of concentration Holocaust. camps. Yeah, yeah, where where it, it 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 tries to take this inherently like dehumanizing experience yep. and trying to weave a sort of magical realist, um, like a borderline magical realist uh, story as a through line throughout it in order to sort of like take away like the 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 heft or the bitterness of that experience yeah uh, in, in order to try to craft into like a life-affirming like story yeah i i think it, in jettisoning a hero's story arc into a prison's journey is inherently uh, a false you know ideal and it can be entertaining, and I definitely think Shawshank Redemption is entertaining, uh, but ultimately I'm never moved by it, and kind of wonder what it says when this a movie like this becomes, yeah, arguably one of the most celebrated movies of all time. I put it on Netflix, you know, and my dad walked by, and he's like, is this Shawshank? I'm like, yeah, and then he goes, oh, man, this is, I think this is, like, one of my favorite movies of all time, and I never hear him talk about it. Not because I don't think he's ever seen it, but it's like the moment it's on, it becomes your favorite thing, you know, whatever, and in my opinion, that means it's doing something wrong, even if on a molecular level, <laughs> um, but... I. Yeah. When I was um, watching this film uh, again this morning, was rewatching it for this episode. I made like a, a sort of offhand tweet where I was like, "TNT daytime reruns are the surest sign that a feature film has like entered into like the the the, the cultural canon of, of popular culture." And I was thinking exactly of um, Shawshank Redemption when I thought of that because I cannot. I cannot for the life of me recall what was the first time that I saw Shawshank Redemption, yeah. but I remember all these bits and pieces that I have gleaned either from chance encounters on like cable or peripherally through other forms of popular culture that are referencing like Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. No, it's uh it's definitely uh, a, a monument in pop culture, and for for some good reasons. I mean, there's you yeah. know, performances across the board, and I will say the one thing that I do think is elevated is uh, the marriage between Frank Darabont's uh, staging and Roger Deakins' cinematography. Like, that was never anything less than fantastic. Um and I do have good things to say about it. I mostly wanted to get that out there in case that doesn't become a focal point of the conversation, which I can understand why it won't, uh, just so that way I could at least articulate it while I was thinking about it. But um, I do think it is an entertaining movie. Um, I, I don't find it to be a particularly you know, emotional one, but I can very easily waste two hours by sitting down and watching it you know, any day of the week or whatever. Right on. So, 
Um, but quickly before I get to my initial comments, Nick, yes. I was going to say uh, during your uh, commentary regarding, I don't want to, you weren't really saying like the normalization of, of prison experience, but sort of giving a, yeah, there's giving a, a bit yeah, of a glorification. Yeah. I was going to mention that um, when I've heard, whenever I think of prison, and I mean, obviously, I think most you people think have no interest. lot, too. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, whenever I think of prison in media, the depiction that I always fall back on that always sounds like the worst thing to ever is either Oz um specific parts of oz and i haven't seen a lot of it but i've seen some and it's not pretty uh and i don't think prison probably is uh and then i also think of uh the i think it's about 15 or 20 minutes in american history x when edward norton is in prison and i feel like unfortunately that's probably closer to what authentically prison is and i will say this does take place in the 1940s 50s and 60s right. so i feel like it is a little bit different probably than what modern prison would be like but um at the same time i, I totally hear what you guys are both saying on it at one point they're watching gilda in prison and let me tell you if i went to prison and i got to watch gilda on a nitrate print i'd be in fucking heaven Well, again, uh, you're also not going to go to prison in the 1950s, so... Yeah, not unless you have a time machine, buddy. Just you wait. Thanks for the Hamilton reference. (laughs) You can tell Emily about that one. (laughs) I I will. Oh, boy. Sad. Next week was supposed to be when we were going to New York. We were going to see Hamilton there. Jeez. You still going? So... (laughs) I mean, I canceled my flight, but I we could have went. We would have had nowhere to stay. Oh, <laughs> Nothing true. to do except for get coronavirus. <laughs> uh, yeah, now we're we're at, we're gonna take a pass. That's but, fair. Yeah, maybe 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 another time. Yeah. So, I'm a big fan. I don't think that this is. A masterpiece uh but i think this is a very good film and it's definitely i think what i would consider to be a weird spot where mainstream people feel like they're watching a cinephile film because uh it's not a film that cinephiles would gravitate towards but it feels uh, I don't know what the best term is that most common film viewers would use, but uh, I guess I'll use a term my mother would use, which is artsy. It it like kind of feels on the outset like it is a film that somebody made for art, but if you watch it, it's not. It's a film that was made for common people, um, and I think that they just needed time to watch it and. That's why I feel like one of the things that people gravitate towards, though, is that this idea that they're watching this film that everyone else thinks is good. And so they 
are watching it and they're liking it and they're like, oh yes, this is good. Um, and I think that that's part of what added to the lore of that becoming just this <clears throat> huge thing. I, I think The Godfather has some of the same thing going on where that's a film, I think that's more made for artistic purposes than Shawshank is. But I feel like people watch that and they're like, yeah, I can totally see what Francis was doing here. And it's like, nah, okay. So that being said, just sitting down and watching this, this is a really um, easy film to watch for the two hour and 15 minute run time. And that because there's great things happening here to the characters because they are in prison for the majority of this film. And a lot of what's going on here uh, is not depicting uh, happy times for any of the characters as they are all in prison and the characters we see that do get released from prison and uh, the first one we see um, can't handle it and takes his own life because he's been in prison for 50 years and he doesn't know how to do this. So interestingly enough, um, I think that this film really actually pretty great in the way that it shows passage of time. Um, but at the other side though, it's, it's weird because the passage of time happens over 20 years, but I feel like it's weird because we'll see like the first like 35 minutes are like a year and a half. And then the second 30 minutes are like 12 years. Uh, and it doesn't really have great pacing in that portion of the film, which is I think about halfway through, but the film does show a great passage of time. And I know that um, there was a lot of ta- uh, a lot of pacing decisions and a lot of um, decisions on set decoration and the way to make up characters um, from Frank Darabont watching Goodfellas, which is interesting because that is a film that a lot of people celebrate as well. Um, so I think that there's a lot for viewers to gravitate towards just on those elements alone. But when you really go into the story of this film um, and the idea of these two characters, I don't want to say accepting what's happened to them, but I think that that is what most people, at least it's what I gravitate towards this idea that these two people are in prison um, and especially Morgan Freeman's character who is by his own admission guilty. He murdered um, somebody and he's in jail for it. Um, He seems pretty understanding that he's in jail for murdering somebody and he is living out his sense until they let him go. If that's ever going to happen. And, um, Tim Robbins' character of Andy Dufresne is obvious, at least, well, at least it seems as though he is definitely innocent. Uh, but at the same time, um, he's not always trying to spend the whole film writing uh, his congressman or the president looking for a pardon or trying to set up new trials. He's very much resigned to this idea that he's going to be in prison um, for a long time. And obviously, he spends 20 years uh, creating this hole, which, uh, by the way, is totally unrealistic that no one found that. Uh, But at any rate, that's fine. So these two guys are just living their lives through this 20-year time period. Um, 
And it is very interesting to see some of the characters that come and go, but it is their relationship that really holds this film together and is what makes this film, uh, I think, so good. Um, I think the last 15 minutes of this film are absolutely fantastic. Uh, when you have the climax of the film happen, obviously that fantastic scene uh, where we actually see Andy escaping, climbing through the walls, uh, literally climbing his way through shit as he's making his way out during this thunderstorm. Um, and then obviously the classic shot of him looking up into the rain and the thunder and lightning um, as he holds his arms out. Uh, and then we cut back and we see everything that happens with the warden. And then we see red being released uh, after his tone change during his parole hearing, which also um, I think is kind of fucked up this idea that, um, if you just say something slightly different that people will let you leave, you know, maybe 10 years earlier, which is really bizarre. And I don't know if that's what the film is going for, but I thought it was really odd. Anyways. Um, I think the ending of this film with, uh, them embracing on that wide shot on the beach is just so great. And I, I, I really love that. And I, I really love this film. I think it's very good and it's a very enjoyable watch and, um, just a, a really, I think good story of people more than the actual story that's going on because yes, obviously our main characters are incarcerated and they are living a majority of their lives in prison. Um, but it's good just to be friends with people and to be kind to people and to, um, try to do good things for your fellow man, whatever situation you're in. Um, and I think that we see a real bond happen throughout the entirety of this film, which culminates in the uh, very final denouement scene. So I'm a big fan, and um, I'm looking forward to talking more about it in depth with you guys. Tucson? Thank you, Alex. Um, so, yeah. Um uh like i like i said before i recently rewatched this film uh for the first time in many what it feels like many years uh uh purely because we were doing an episode on it today um and i have to say that i was surprisingly taken with it um i really did enjoy it like sort of echoing uh uh alex's sentiment like i really did feel like the the passage of time was very easy to sort of like get lost in. Uh, I think that the actual editing for the film is superb. And in a time where um, I am at a severe uh, deficit of uh, available time when it comes to like being able to sit down and like watch movies and really thinking about them, um, this was so easy to watch and so easy to just sort of like clue into that I didn't really mind the passage of time. Um, I have to say that I really enjoyed, uh, Tim Robbins and, uh, Morgan Freeman's characters. Like, I think that, uh, like what you said before, Alex, that the main through line of this film really is their relationship. And it's so, it's so funny to me to look back on this film and to see like the, how, how this feels like the impetus of so many other, um, like, ideas within popular culture not so much ideas but rather um sort of assumptions when it comes to the characters or the actors who are involved in uh who are involved in this film 
like the whole idea of Morgan Freeman like narrating and like the narration voice from Morgan Freeman it feels like this is like the ground zero for that and as I mean, I mean he, he, that's why he was hired for this was to yeah. get the narration <laughs> yeah yeah and just like it it, it, it feels like I want to say it feels like a meme, but no, this existed before memes were even a thing. Like, this is just, like, the seed of an idea that just, like, grew, like, over the years into what we now know of it as today as Morgan Freeman's, like, God voice or whatever. Um, I don't really have much of an opinion on Tim Robbins himself as a as an actor. I don't really remember him from much else, uh, but I really do enjoy him in this role. Um, I thought that was an interesting sort of, like, thought experiment for myself to sort of imagine um, if Andy Dufresne actually did kill his wife and her lover, like how would that change my sort of like reading of that character and like his eventual um, emotional and arc and like where he ended up in. Um, and I got to say, I don't know, really know where, where I sit with that. Um, like just tr sort of trying to imagine that sort of like alternative reading um, basically because of the involvement of the, the one kid that he was trying to shepherd and mentor and like help him get his, uh, what is the equivalent of back then the GED. Um, I think like that is obviously meant to sort of like absolve him by, uh, by proxy for the fact that this kid that he trusted overheard um, a heinous, uh, like co-prisoner who <laughs> that's a, fortuitous that he would appear there yeah it's it's fortuitous it isn't isn't it fortuitous then um <laughs> i have to say that of all the things that i agree with nick with regards to uh this film's depiction of prison and how it feels almost like a a saccharine depiction of prison even by the the standards of like the time period that it actually predicts, let alone of the modern prison industrial complex. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's, this is uh, not representative of that at all. Um, I will say that something that I think does strike a chord and I think that is still poignant is uh, the character of, I'm trying to remember his name, uh, Brooks. The character of Brooks and being let out of prison and seeing how much the world has actually changed and gone on without him and having to uh, acclimate to a world that has moved ahead of you, that he has spent the majority of his life in prison. And when you come out of prison with more years behind you than are ahead of you and wondering where where your place is in the world if there is one like yeah that is uh that's brutal and i and i feel like even if it might not be a match for match um with regards to time period i feel like that is a very uh true to life um sort of depiction of what it means to move out of the prison system and still be institutionalized you know, it's weird, and I feel like I've thought this more and more over the years, but um, prison, uh, I have no experience with, so I have no way to really comment on it. Neither but, do I. Yeah, but... Uh -huh, sure. <laughs> uh, but 
Um, I am more and more, uh, as, as my life has gone on, just pretty much unfortunately come to the conclusion that uh, as a society, we are terrible at getting people ready for the next step for a whatever their journey is going to be. Uh, when it comes to a setting where you're in a place for a, a long period of time before moving on to a different place. Uh, oh, no. I, yeah. They are uh, they're basically like, cont- like the modern age is untouchable because it literally is just a quicksand uh, systematic uh, sort of like landslide that, that basically pits people into the same sort of circumstances that led to them being incarcerated in the first place. It's absolutely fucked. Well, and I, I was actually going to mention that something I definitely do have experience with um, is moving on from being a, a student um, for your entire life that you can remember, going through high school, and then moving on uh, into straight into adulthood right after you graduate high school um, or move on from high school, whatever. Um one semester of consumer education is not going to cut the mustard. Uh, I feel like it took probably a good decade after I was out of high school for me to actually have a grasp on what being an adult meant. Um, and I feel like that is definitely somewhat of a fault of our educational system. I would agree. I wouldn't say that, like, obviously I wouldn't compare, like, the material experience of oh like, no I've, going through was... compulsory education to to uh, to right. incarceration, but I do agree in the spirit of like what you're saying with regards to like how these 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 two respective systems do not prepare either either other populations to adequately being able to function uh, within society. We're sort of left to flounder, and it's uh. It's a fucking crime. It really is. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, hopefully someday uh, we'll see an improvement in both uh, and put money on it. Uh, So getting to general thoughts, uh, one particular scene that I wanted to mention that uh, this goes a little bit on to what Nick was alluding to earlier with um, Frank Darabont's placing of characters through blocking and also Roger Deakins cinematography uh, but one of my favorite scenes always in this film is when Andy Dufresne uh, starts the record of the uh, two opera singers uh, playing the opera uh, and turns it up so the entire prison can hear it as he's locked out the warden uh, and the other guard that cannot get into it. And you just see all the prisoners looking up and staring into the sky basically as they're trying to see where this music is coming from. And just the one shot that goes up from the ground as we see the prisoners and kind of looking up into the sky, um, just flawless filmmaking, in my opinion. I feel like there's other parts of this film um, that have that same cinematographical feel that are just wonderful with the way music plays through or just dialogue or monologue and cinematography. Um, They're just gorgeous parts of this film that um, I'm always floored by any time that I see it. Yeah. I, um, speaking of that scene, one of the things that I really appreciated about it visually was that, um, I 
tried to think about it through the lens of being a movie from 1990, then I think about what it would be like if it got made today, and all I could think of is, like, most of those prisoners would be CGI human beings. Um, so, like, you know, how they populate stadiums and whatnot nowadays. and It's more expedient! Yeah, it's something. But, uh, no, it's a absolutely gorgeous feast uh, that it uh, captures, and... Um, yeah, it, um, I was going to say something else, but now I forgot, but I do. I'm uh, always, yes. uh, I'm, I'm sorry to, to no, step on your toes, but I'm oh, always, <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> whenever, whenever I see like overhead crane shots that sort of like survey an entire location and seeing all these people milling about, I, I'm always struck by the the question of like how exactly do they choreograph all of those different people within that same shot like i just i don't understand like at what level how does that communication system work like what if they have to reset a shot and they're like everybody go back to your fucking marks okay and i'm like how how does that even work I, it's like it boggles my mind yeah, and I mean, yeah, sure, if you pause it, you can see a few of them holding Starbucks cups, but that's the price you pay, you know? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good trade-off. Oh, my God. Uh, I saw that with... Um, with Little Women? Uh, yeah. Cute. Oh, boy. I, I love how angry people get about that. I know. That... It's like, do people... Oh, man, do they not realize that, A... It's actually happening way more often than we realize. Like, we're just catching some, uh, especially with the internet and whatnot. But B, it's like, do you know how much work goes into making a movie? A lot. Well, yeah. Well, and then you look at the other side of the coin with, like, Game of Thrones, where I'm pretty sure that was on purpose. So. <laughs> yeah, some angry staffers, like, oh man, this final season sucks. <laughs> Hey, no, I, that cup? no, I think it's more up to the fact that those those showrunners really seem like they were checked just out. spiritually. Yeah, they were just emotionally and spiritually checked out of the series, even though it had brought them so much um, in the way of like prosperity. professional careers. Yeah, professional prosperity and career like success. And now I don't know what the hell they're working on. I don't care. Yeah, they got well, their show canceled. Yeah. But at least they got a little cameo in, in uh, Westworld. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that great, guys? Mm. It, it fucking sucked. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, you, son. <laughs> I, I'll, I will say, I don't, uh, I don't think a lot of people who are showrunners or even just film directors now um, are as nearly meticulous as directors that are like thought of as these all-time great. Oh, yeah terrible people like stanley kubrick or david fincher who are just endlessly forcing ninety thousand reshoots and having to look through every single frame to make sure that they have it exactly how they want it and it's like ah, people aren't doing that they're doing it in two takes and if not just one yeah no i agree with that i mean i think part of that is because it's also about what they're given it's like well, if you're not gonna let me do what i want to do or budget what you know whatever it's it's all snake eating its own tail ecosystem at this point oh the budget too that's another 
big part of it. And also, unfortunately, to go with what you just mentioned about adding in CGI prisoners, I think that's just the thought is that, well, if something's wrong, we'll just fix it with uh, graphics. It's like, yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I do want to mention that I didn't love, and uh, then I'll go on to some things that I did like, but to kind of zone in a little bit more on the thoughts I was articulating about it, kind of glorifying the prison experience, um, I think a good way to kind of look at it, or another uh, pain of the prism, so to speak, is to look at the arc that Andy Dufresne goes through compared to the other characters, um, at least for right now, let's presume that he's innocent, because in my opinion, the movie says that he's presumably innocent. I mean, it's ambiguous to the point of, like, what's the point of the movie if he's not innocent? I Whatever, but... Um, oh, no, the, the movie is <coughs> blatantly saying that he's innocent, I think. Yeah, in my opinion, this is the kind of cheap ambiguity where you didn't actually create ambiguity. You just decided not to concretely back up what you are explicitly stating. <laughs> the film's not really so nice. actually about him. The film's not really about him being innocent or guilty at all, actually, which I think is why it doesn't even pull in that thread. Yeah, but then here's the thing. Um, the fact that he is innocent is important to the fabric of the prison and the society there within because the one thing I think about when I think of this movie sort of romanticizing the prison experience, even amidst the hardships and whatnot, is there's a certain othering effect that is happening when we have a presumably innocent character not giving up hope and therefore being able to essentially win and not just get out, but also enact revenge on the warden and the guard and whatnot. But then you have a character like Brooks, who presumably is guilty, and I feel like that's where it's stacking the deck against other characters. It's like, well, Andy was innocent, so he was always going to be okay, and he needs to have a happy ending, but everybody else is technically, shall we say, not safe from the institutionalization of prison and whatnot, and the only reason why Red gets off, you know, not scot-free, but, uh, you know, makes his way is because of the help of Andy, so it's almost like it, it really doesn't paint a good light at all uh, tangentially to the concept of rehabilitation, uh, which is honestly a muddied concept in the real world anyway, and they actually do touch upon that in the movie a little bit when, the, you know, Red says that that's a politician's word, and that's actually a pretty great monologue even, you know, 20-some years later. Um, but like I said, there's a weird distancing happening when Andy is in my opinion, starkly innocent, and he's the one who's afforded the happy ending. It just kind of has a weird, sick undercurrent of he deserves it, and maybe other people don't, unless it is given by other innocent people. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I, I think for the most part, the film... <clears throat> paints this picture that almost everyone else who's in the prison is guilty. So 
I think him being innocent is the outlier. So this idea that of him, him not being, well, it's hard too, because he's just, he's the main character in the film. So I feel like even so he's just going to be treated differently because he's following a journey that all of the other prisoners aren't on the same path because they just don't matter as much the story, which I think lends itself to what you're saying, Nick, but also at the same time, that character is always going to be treated differently just because he's the main character in a feature length film. Besides um, him having been accused and tried for um, murdering his wife and her lover, like there's not really any other uh, examples of of behavior from Andy Dufresne that would lead us to suggest him, or that would paint him at in a negative light, or even in a morally ambiguous light. He almost feels like a like almost sanctified by the point that he actually like enters into uh, in, into Shawshank for the fact that he doesn't he doesn't respond when like all the inmates are like going for their whole like new fish like hazing ritual he seems like like even even red himself seems to uh to 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 sort of like beatify him in a sort of way where he says like yeah he just walks around like he's like wearing an, a, a coat that just, just like protects him from everything else around it and like and even to the point where like when he is being roughed up by like that that one like gang of 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 uh prisoners that just keep on like going at him all the time like it seemed it, 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 it almost feels like he like a almost like a like a christ-like figure in a way and then i don't know how to how to feel about that that storyline is always a little bit weird to me and not because it's not authentic yeah. but um i feel like that it was put in the film because i think mm, people who don't understand what prison really is just assume that people get raped nonstop in prison. So if they didn't include a whole storyline of him having to fend off rapists through the first 20 minutes of the film, that it wouldn't have been a real prison movie because uh, yeah, it's a really, it's an insidious trope that has um, like proliferated it into into popular culture and is treated very glibly, but I don't but, think that but, it's, but it, it's treated that way in this. It instance. appears in this film, it ends in this film, and it's never mentioned again. So, is there just right. no no and rape happening ever there again? Was just, there was just one group that was doing the raping, and now they're not doing it anymore. Yeah, yeah. In this movie, it's also explicitly coded with queerness, which is also a problem. Um, I mean, yeah. they were literally called the sisters and whatnot. So I'm almost glad that it came and went because it wasn't really uh, portraying it in any uh, meaningful light. So I'm glad that it was dispatched when it did. Yeah, I could agree with that. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, something I really liked about this movie Um is uh tucson had talked about the character earlier but the uh young stud he takes under his wings in the uh 60s i think maybe that's how you show the passage of time by the way sideburns yeah every yeah. time because i only watch this like once a decade so it's not like it's fresh in my mind 
Every time I watch this movie, though, like, the split second that character shows up, I think it's Thomas Jane for some reason. Um, I think it's the sideburns, I don't know, but I don't know if it's just because Frank Darabont on The Mist or something, but I'm always like, is that Thomas Jane? And then I have to go to IMDb and then get all depressed when it's not. But, um, anyway, uh, but I very much enjoyed that character because I thought that was something that was lacking from a lot of the other characters, which was an actual backstory and their own subplot. I mean, there's, this is a two hour and 20 minute movie, so I think there was enough time, so to speak, to give a little more, uh, substance to at least some of the characters in the gang, um, outside of Red, Andy, and maybe Brooks, so when he shows up, I think it's a bright spot in the movie, and then, of course, it also leads to one of the most, if not the most tragic moment in the entire film, because, say what you want about Brooks, unfortunately, he lived a long life, which, not obviously a great life, but what happens to, um, I forget his name, but, uh, the guy, uh, is genuinely, uh, malicious evil and just unfortunately awful to witness especially because it's almost uh indirectly andy's fault yeah yeah uh tommy's his name by the way i mean it's his it's his fault but it does follow that subplot that's going on throughout the film where it's basically just hinted um and then it's I feel like confirmed, uh, especially at that point that they are aware that he's innocent and that there is evidence, especially from Tommy that could get him out, but he's being kept there to run the finances for this, um, labor scheme, which I will say, I feel like this film actually does that a bit of a disservice and should have expanded on that a little bit more because there is that one five minute, portion of the film where they talk about how he's sort of tapped into this free labor enterprise that the warden set up where he's collecting all these profits, um, which is um, very bad, but also feels very authentic, unfortunately. Um, And then it's really just Andy's point of view from it going forward And uh, I feel like we should have gotten a little more detail as the film progressed because I felt like that became like such a big business that, I mean, they're murdering inmates now to keep Andy alive and not set free so he can continue to cook the books for them. So there should be a little more time given to this idea that there is this huge um, underground operation going on that's being led by the warden of a prison. I actually think that that's tied into another, I don't know, flaw of the movie, which is the characterization of the warden. I think the performance is pretty great, but at the end of the day, the the script throws up a few, in my opinion, red herrings about his true nature and whatnot. And one of the more fascinating things when Andy first gets to prison is the idea of how important religion is to him. And outside of a few passing mentions, he's not that devout whatsoever, which it's not so much that I'm like, what happened to this pious gentleman? Uh, More than I was 
fascinated that, by the hook of like how he would use that as his you know uh, safeguard of all the deeds he would you know uh, put out and whatnot. I feel like that's less of a uh, a characteristic of the film as it is of the source material because like that's a through line in a lot of Stephen King's like work, at least his early work oh, yeah. when it comes like, to like the depiction carry... of like yeah, like the depiction of religion and how religion is is wielded as a cudgel by like sometimes the most cowardly and craven of people in order to exert um, power over others. Like it, it was the same thing in like even the mist. Uh, like oh yeah yeah yeah. So. Uh, well, I will say um, <laughs> it does equal one of the best lines in the entire film early on uh, when. And the uh, lead guard comes through opening night uh, for Andy there. Uh, and he just straight up kills the one guy who was calling for his mother, which is really a really weird scene because of the tone of it, because it is awful. Uh, but at the same time, all of the other inmates are kind of laughing at the beginning of it. So it, it's uh, really kind of gut-wrenching, I feel like. But the scene opens with a great line as he comes in and screams, God damn it, you motherfuckers or something like that. Uh, and you can hear one of the prisoners saying, Oh, I'm going to tell the warden. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I just thought it was great. Yeah, no, actually that was some of the better sound mixing. Uh, that, that entire scene, there are so many great asides from the other prisoners that are mixed so well to the point where, um, like, like I was genuinely kind of cracking up because of how <laughs> just, uh, witty and verbose some of these gentlemen are uh, and how it was never like faded into the background it was actually in the forefront and uh, so I appreciated that a lot hell yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we watched this while we're all kind of locked up <laughs> yeah go on, go on Nick Finish that thought. No, I mean that was the thought. Oh it was there was just a one one note punchline. I'm so glad we watched this when we're locked up in our houses in fear of the of, of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Thank yeah. you for that, Nick. Anytime. Deep thoughts. Deep. So deep. Deep life. Um, so one other thing I for sure wanted to mention is I always think, uh, and, and this is doesn't really mean very much, but I always find it pretty interesting that uh, a lot of people's thought about um, African Americans and that they are up to no good, uh, as a lot of people unfortunately have that thought of them being in prison. Uh, and that just classification of them uh, as them, uh, I really just story-wise like the idea uh, um, that the white guy breaks out and the um, African-American gets paroled in the end of the film. I don't know why. It's such a silly, small part of it. But whenever I watch the film, I think it's really interesting that that kind of subverts expectations of this idea of this white accountant who has been working for 20 years to break you know, out of prison. I didn't even think about that. I didn't, I didn't even, uh, I, I didn't even think about that. I was like, uh, yeah, I can't, I, I can't sort of see that. Uh, 
I'm with Tucson because I said the same thing to Alan because he had texted me that, and I'm like, huh, I never, you know, noticed that. But uh, may I argue that the reason why that doesn't really come across at all, I mean, not that it's supposed to or anything like that, but the reason why it's, like, kind of you have to look, you know, squint is because this movie doesn't actually view red through the lens of race at all um which is probably because the character in the original material is not black really okay yeah oh that makes a lot of sense because on the one hand you could say it's progressive obviously to be to say you know like oh wow i don't have there's not really a hint of uh marginalizing that character you know due to uh that or but then on the other hand it's the opposite and it's like you know it's kind of interesting that nobody is commenting on why he may or may not get him parole um this this is a very uh 90s uh brand of progressivism where it's like everybody's the same color in prison there's no such thing is pre-existing systemic institutional they, prejudices in prison. We are all in prison. Only they, 90s wardens will remember this. <laughs> yeah, that kind of shit. They literally wouldn't even change the character's name because uh, it was supposed to be a uh, white Irish guy, which is why his name is Red. Yeah, yeah okay. At least I, thought that the, makes I thought the whole sense. Irish thing was just a joke. But I mean, like, I no, think it is like in this it, it is kind of poking at the original text, but yeah. Okay, well, at least that makes the movie make a lot more sense and a lot <laughs> less sense at the same time. Well, I guess uh, one of the early people who was considered for that role would be clint eastwood so that would have definitely changed the way the movie is i think uh yeah i (laughs) i would have to say yeah it totally would because i i'm sorry i cannot see clint eastwood as a sympathetic character in the role of red he just seems like a guy i'd be like he would just curse tim robbins out and he would just like go around barking facial slurs at everything that moves i just can't sympathize with the clint eastwood character unless he's shouting racial epithets so um that would change oh my the god dynamic of the whole thing really oh my god yeah it certainly would <laughs> um <laughs> i mean we're laughing but let's be honest that's the card he's been playing for the last decade Oh yeah, that's, that's. Has it been just a decade? No, probably not. No, <laughs> oh, it's a decade of just saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah. Um. Uh, one thing I was gonna say was about. Uh, I forgot. Oh. Um. <laughs> I okay. One thing I I do have to nitpick is that just because you have a degree in accounting doesn't mean that you just automatically know how to classify the metadata that goes into cataloging books in a library, okay? I mean, but, but they didn't have metadata back then. You know what? Who... D- no. They didn't have metadata back then, man. And, and guess what? He wasn't just an accountant. He didn't just go to accounting school. He was the vice president of a branch of a bank, okay? When he was that young. He was a pretty smart cookie. He was a pretty smart cookie. Was that young? Tim Robbins was like 50 when this movie got made. Yeah, but he was made out to be a younger guy. No. Hey, guess <laughs> when the Dewey Decimal System was published? 
1876, so he had more than 50 fucking years to learn it. Yeah, from the day he was born, he had he had a time to learn that shit. Mm-hmm. I lie, by the way. He was only like 40 when this movie came out. Uh, seemed like a young cat, like uh, early 30s. I do like the uh, the hairdos in the early part of this film. He's got that kind of long hair with the uh, really short hair around the sides and the back. Very fitting for that time period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's drinking. He's drinking his uh, his scotch or his. He's drinking the hooch. Yeah, he's drinking his hooch while driving his fucking vehicle. I'm just like, you should have gone to jail just for that. Mm-hmm. But it was a different time. You should have gone to jail for Yep, you should have gone to jail just for that. It's reckless endangerment. Also, did you notice that when he's got the gun on the seat, he's got eight bullets, and that's like how many bullets the killer shot? Wow. Hmm. I read Unsolved Mysteries. (laughs) Yeah. Also, we're in our 23rd version of the Dewey Decimal System. That's amazing. Did you look that up on the internet? Yeah. <laughs> I thought you would I have just known that for the this movie. Yeah, like by dint of your, your occupation. Uh, no, okay? I'm not a nerd. I'm a librarian. Mm, I look diff- shit up. I don't retain it. That's not true. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, anything else you guys want to discuss? No, this it's a good film, but it I'm ready to move I into pee. my final. I'm ready to move into my uh, my final my final thoughts and feelings about the Shawshank Redemption. Thank you for that, Nick. Uh, that, that wasn't for you, but sure, you're welcome. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Go ahead, Tucson. All right, so I'm going to give this... uh, Kind of like a burning sensation. I'm going to give this a four out of five, uh, just because I really did enjoy it um, when I rewatched it. I think that all the criticisms that are lobbied at it are are legitimate. Uh, Maybe it's kind of pat to to give a film like this such a high score, um, just because it's, it's... canonized to the point where like the various bits and pieces that make up the actual film itself have been reproduced as tropes throughout other films so many times that it almost feels like a like a cliche like the source text is a cliche itself but like no i just i enjoyed it i'm not going to say that it's the most profound of films i'm not going to say that it's the most illuminating of films but it certainly is entertaining and it uh it made me feel good it was like a uh, a familiar warm blanket that I I pulled out of the attic because it was just getting cold and uh, I just I just felt like snuggling up and just like enjoying it for like two and a half hours. Why do you keep your blankets in the attic? It I mean, it seems like a lot. I mean, it's more it's more of like a seasonal thing, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe like, you're you know, having some weird like. I don't know, hormonal disorder where your body is <laughs> regulating its temperature correctly at the moment. 
Uh, Hormonal disorder, sir. I mean, that's a that's that's quite a reach. If you're listening and you have coronavirus, take hydrocloxin. I just shut the fuck up. Somebody mute him right now. First of all, I will say, and I I don't want to go off on this, but please don't. I'm I'm just a little bit. First of all, Donald Trump definitely owns stock in that company. Um, He was able to very clearly pronounce the name of it accurately multiple times. Yeah, which practiced it in the mirror multiple times. He can never do with simple words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'd like you to melanin, melanin, melatonin. How do you even know that word? Smolania. Monica Lewinsky. Oh wait. <laughs> but yes, that is my uh, <laughs> my, my my final thoughts <laughs> about Shawshank Redemption. I give it a four out of five. Who's next? I'll go next so Alex can round us up if that's cool. Yeah. I will give this a three and a half out of five. I certainly think it's quite serviceable. And uh, every once in a while, it's, uh, it's, a little, it's a little mushy and it feels good. Um, but I can't say it's particularly important in my own personal film canon uh, which is the only one that matters so I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five I'll That's continue fair. on with the po- yeah I'll continue with the positive scores I'm a big fan of this film um, but as I mentioned in my initial thoughts I don't think this is one of the best films of all time so I give this a four out of five uh, I think that there's no parts of this film that I feel bored during or any parts of this film that I super critique. I just think that it's quite good, um, but not super, super great. So I'm a fan. Uh, again, I love the last 20 or so minutes of this film. I think the entire climax of this uh, following through and I think the third act actually does linger on for a pretty long time for most film standards but I think it's very good and I'm a big fan so 4 out of 5 for me for the Shawshank Redemption can I ask you guys a question about the movie really quick please yeah. um, but only one okay I only have one uh, what is being redeemed fuck Is that your final answer? <laughs> oh, oh, fuck, Alex. <laughs> Thanks. I'd like to phone a friend. What I thought. Honestly, this title now just reads like the naming practices for a Big Bang Theory episode. And if you don't oh, know what I mean, go to Wikipedia, I, no, Big Bang Theory, and click list of episodes, and you'll see what I mean. I'm, I'm sure that it makes sense in the original uh, short story. Maybe, okay, maybe, okay, how about how about this? How about I just I just say some words out loud, and I'll, I will 
finally come to my answer as to what exactly is being redeemed in the Shawshank. Uh, this might not really end up where you want it to. I know, but you know Don't what? Stop him. I gotta, I gotta try. Um, it is. Or I could read off Big Bang Theory episode titles. I don't want you to do that. I didn't the ask for that. The luminous uh, fish effect. N- nope, I the don't care. The hamburger uh, postulate. What I think Please is being redeemed. The what I think dumpling be- paradox. Okay. What I think is being redeemed. <laughs> Can you imagine this film is called The Dumpling Paradox? <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, I love the dumpling paradox. What it? What is the paradox, and why are there dumplings? Uh, what I, I think is being redeemed here is um, hope. Sure. And the and the fact that you know hope is still valid for these men. And that you shouldn't just, like, throw it away. This is me in, in, in fucking high school when I didn't do the reading and I'm trying to just, like, extrapolate <laughs> out of shit. But I did the reading most of the time, so don't put that shit on me. Did you? Yes, I did. Okay. I was the fucking nerd. Uh, I mean, I think title-wise, yeah, I mean... Is, is there anything really being saved here? I, I think if, if you want souls. Yeah. I mean, if anything, um, it speaks more to but Red's character than it does to Andy Dufresne. Yeah, but he seemed pretty much fully formed from the moment we meet him. <laughs> and what are you talking I don't about? know he, that he, Shawshank he's... was a part of that. Um, I will. I think he's being more honest with himself at the end of the film than he is when we first meet him. But that's a bit of a stretch if you're just trying to go with the title of the film. Um, I think, if anything, it, it, it works better kind of tongue-in-cheek because the idea of the religious aspect of it and kind of spitting the face of that, but I don't think that's what the film is really going for. So, I don't know. I got nothing. So according it's... to the internet, the <laughs> title refers to Andy's escape as well as a shout out to one of the ways he makes life bearable in prison. Okay. By putting in a library? Sure. <laughs> Getting people their GED? What? Yeah. He helped them, like, continue to have a life, even if it was on the inside. But why call it Shawshank? Why not? Why isn't that the Defrain's Redemption? Well, that's literally the name of the prison. Yeah, but the prison didn't do that. (laughs) Oh, didn't it? Would he have ever done that were it not for the fact that he was in the prison, Nick? Let's be honest. He would have murdered his wife the next day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If that crazy guy uh, who also is almost like a Dudley Do-Right villain who's just like, I do it. That was that was quite a scene right there. Yeah. No? Okay. I'm sorry. I'm reading an answer on Korra about what does the Shawshank Redemption mean. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
Put that away. Stop. I think it's time for us to bring this episode to a close. I Andy think is I... emotionally numb. That's one reason he's convicted, because he expresses no feeling about his wife's death, which makes him look guilty. When we enter the prison and see the thick walls from overhead, that is symbolic of the walls around Andy's ability to feel. <laughs> this so, is why you should never read the internet. So I do. The, the whole <laughs> Shawshank Redemption is him learning to have a, a will to live again and to feel and to actually embrace life. Well, being near raped will do that to you. Oh, no. I, I like will say, um, do, I feel like it's, um, I feel like it's implied that he is raped at some point. Um, is he? Sometimes he was able to fight them off, sometimes know. he wasn't. Oh, okay, yeah. I, I was kind of what that I gathered. It like a joke I meant, I couldn't remember. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Although, they make a point to basically show him outsmarting the guy, so it's almost like... Uh, I don't know, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Also, I don't really think of rapist as having like a briar rabbit type intelligence where if you just say a magic phrase they'll be like oh okay there'll be no raping here <laughs> I don't know why I just said rapist and briar rabbit in the same sentence but there goes my childhood I don't know why you did either but you know what it happened and we're here <laughs> You know what's magic about doing these Skype episodes is I don't think we would have ever had um, we would have never had this if we were doing this at the studio. So. Oh, we have plenty of stream of consciousness nightmare dialogue on our on our, our in studio podcast, but this would have been different. A, yeah, this is a different breed. This is definitely a different breed. Mm. Yeah. I don't know why the way you just said that I thought of Samuel L. Jackson in Django Unchained, so that's something. Oh sure, sure was. Yeah. <laughs> okay, do we want to wrap up this episode? That sounds for the best. Yeah. So if you out there have any thoughts uh, on the Shawshank Redemption or what the Shawshank Redemption means, <laughs> uh, you can send them on to us at film. <laughs> send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter at Film Tank Show. If you want to listen to any of our episodes, you can find most of them on filmtankshow.com or you can also find us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher uh, at Film Tank Show. Uh, so I think we're pretty decided that we're going to do an episode next week um, with Nick's good friend Sarah. Who uh, joined joined us years ago for an episode on Persona, uh, which me and Nick just recently did an episode on another film uh, by Igmar Bergman called The Seventh Seal. So you should also check that episode out if you have the chance. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Sarah is going to join us, and uh, going to uh, the episode is going to center around a, a film that revolves around a Minnesota legend which she is from Minnesota, so that, or at least she lives in Minnesota, right? She does, and she's okay. from it. Okay, well, there you go. 
Uh, and that is the film that stars Prince titled Purple Rain. Uh, I know nothing about this film, so can one of you guys enlighten the audience on what this will be about? Uh, it's about Prince, the kid, who is on his journey to becoming a rock star. Heck yeah. Yeah. You, okay. might, remember, you might remember a, uh, an episode far, far back. I can't remember the exact episode, but I did actually go see this in theaters. Uh, back when uh, Prince had recently passed away and they had a limited uh, theater run of the film. Good. So this will be the first time I've watched it since the uh, the theater run, and I'm kind of excited for that. So uh, thank you, Sarah. Looking forward to that episode. Okay, as am I. I've never seen it, so I will uh, give it a go. Mm-hmm. And you out there can look forward to uh, listening to that on our next episode. So... As always, thank you very much to everyone who listened from Tucson Egan. Bye. Nick Cheney. Goodbye. And myself, Alex Diegman, thank you very much, as always, to listening to us here at Film Tank. We'll be catching up with you next time. <laughs> <laughs>